Hello, and welcome to this episode of Zamnesia Talks. Today I will be interviewing Arda and Ivan, who are the co-founders of Neurosight, a consultancy focusing on harm reduction regarding drugs. Uh, between them, they specialize in policy and clinical research, but I will let them introduce themselves, starting with Arda. Okay, so uh, my background is in neuroscience and policy. So I actually met Ivan when I was studying neuroscience uh, at UCL in London. So since then, we worked together, basically. And um, I like to think of myself as a knowledge broker, I'd say, in the fields of drugs and health innovation. And um, in the different roles and projects uh, I'm involved in, I say, like, I act like a bridge between different sectors, whether this is academia and public sector or business or you could also say, you know, between different stakeholders, whether these are policymakers or drug users or researchers. And um, currently, I spent most of my time working for Clarkenwell Health. Uh, Clarkenwell Health is a contract research organization specializing in the design and delivery of clinical trials with psychedelics. And on the side, with Ivan, we run our own organization called Neurosite. Uh, which is a consultancy for drug harm reduction um, with a focus on education and and policy. And again, like on top of that, I tend to get involved in various projects as a policy researcher, um, especially in the health systems and innovation ecosystems. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much, Arda. And Ivan? Hey, Max. So as Arda said, I did neuroscience at UCL too. And there... In my first year as an undergrad, I started a project called Drugs and Me. And at the beginning, it was kind of a reaction to the lack of uh, information that we got about uh, safe drug use at university. Also, the experiences that our friends and ourselves had. And we also attended a lecture by David Nutt and read mm -hmm. the book uh, Drugs Without the Hot Air. So all those things inspire us to push forward this project. It's Drugs to Me has been run by volunteers, uh, by students specifically, uh, for around seven years. And it's a harm reduction website in which uh, we've tried to digest a lot of scientific content uh, for people to access, uh, access that information and take decisions uh, in, based on the evidence that we um, put in the website. And there are many gaps in the literature, as you are probably exploring through the podcast and uh, the um, blog. So whenever we don't find scientific information, we try to use crowd-sourced uh, information from Arrowweed and other forums like even Reddit. So, mm -hmm. so that's how I got into the harm reduction and uh, drug use field. And then... I've never had a full-time job in the market like Arda has now, uh, but I've had uh, drugs to me neuroscience, and now actually I finished my PhD on cognitive neuroscience uh, like three, four weeks ago, and now I've decided that instead of getting a proper job, I want to try to get any of these projects to be my full-time occupation. And what I'm focusing right now is on integrating AI technology into the cannabis, psychedelic, and drug use sectors. So I'm trying to uh, innovate in that way in these sectors. Yeah, you sent me a link to the bot. Tell me more about it. Yeah, so uh, the bot that you used is basically a combination of uh, OpenAI's technology. So it's a chat GPT, uh, but I inject information from our website and Psychonaut Wiki. And the oh. bot is instructed instructed to be a expert on drugs that uh, answer questions uh, based on the information that's given. So, so it's a combination of a few technologies. And uh, it's, to be honest, the version that you tried is the dumbest version that I could build. <laughs> uh, and it still works. So it's, it's a, a minimal viable product, MVP. And now I've, we, I managed to get like around two, uh, 150 people trying it within two weeks. And I'm hoping to make it smarter, more knowledgeable, because it's got many gaps now. And the idea is to offer this as a service to 
organizations that work with people that take drugs and have a trustworthy and smart virtual companion that will just give you the right information quickly uh, whenever you need it. Okay, so the purpose is that people can come with any question essentially and it will try and give a, an informed and immediate answer? Yeah, so yeah. And, uh, one of the, because especially in the, um, you could say, well, you've got uh, the internet for finding information, uh, but one issue with the uh, drug information is that uh, the search engines promote uh, addiction-related uh, content, so addiction clinics, and they downrank harm reduction information. So if okay. you t if you Google, um, you will in the first pages you will always find uh, addiction centers that have information that is arguably biased and doesn't cover the whole picture and demonizes drug use. So what I'm trying to do is bring together the sources that are uh, trusted and that are have a more holistic and uh, humane view on drug use and build an architecture of a bot that can help with any drug-related questions or issues. Oh, sounds like a worthy goal. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. The process is fun. Yeah? Uh, at least, yeah. Oh, very <laughs> cool. Uh, I think it's cool, and as you said, where there's... There's often holes in the literature. It's interesting how the internet over the last few decades has, I think with drug, I mean, with many things, of course, but with drugs specifically, because it's a an area where many people won't go, has really filled this void with um, just public knowledge and people coming together to share the information they do have. In, and I think that some of these drug forums are actually some of the most supportive and insightful spaces on the internet, at least compared to other forums. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Okay. And so with both of you, is your view about drug use that it's a bad thing that people will do, so we should at least show people how to do it as safely as possible, or that it's a potentially good thing that people can do uh in a positive way and that people should learn to take drugs well so that they can get the benefits of it rather than just avoid the harms mm. well, yeah either <laughs> yeah i mean first of all i'd say drug use as a behavior you know is not inherently good or bad but depending on what you do the consequences can can be you know harmful or beneficial and the trick is to find you know the balance between the two you know, and to draw um, draw a line or teach people how to draw this line, which shows when harms outweigh the benefits. Because um, I guess you know everyone in the school will agree that no matter what we do, people find will find a way of changing their consciousness or perception. Um, you know, depending on what the context is. But yeah, we can delve into the benefits and harms in a bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I felt like Arda was reading my mind, so nothing to add. <laughs> okay. Okay. Okay, easy. Um, okay, where to begin? I guess... So let's start... Let's start there then. Okay, how would you recommend or some information on how people would use drugs responsibly and how you would go about... Um, informing that and what you would class as positive use or negative use um and yeah yeah well it's a broad question and it depends on many factors so a useful model to think about this is a venn diagram that was uh developed by zinberg it's called the zinberg model and it's this idea that you can't understand the high um, of the drug experience if you don't take into account three factors, which are the drug itself, the individual, and the setting. In the psychedelic space, this is often called set and setting. Um, but it's, it's that idea that to, in this case, we're talking about uh, benefits and harm, to understand the benefit of a drug experience to any an individual in a setting 
you have to take all those things into account. It's not just uh, LSD is bad or good. Uh, whoever takes it at any time, uh, there are many nuances. And uh, that's a model that we use to, for instance, at Neuroscite, it's something that we teach uh, people. And when we do staff training at universities, we talk about that model. And it is, and if you combine that model with a categorization of drugs, which is called the drug wheel. Uh, so you can categorize drugs by many different um, characteristics. It can be the effects that they have, the drug molecule, um, etc. So in the, if you categorize them by the effects they have, uh, it can be quite useful for people when they are taking drugs for recreational purposes, because you can cluster drugs and kind of expect, okay, so alcohol and benzos are the, both depressant, so they will have similar effects. So I have to kind of be mindful in a similar way when I take either of those drugs. And also, if I know that I shouldn't mix alcohol with uh, other drugs, I also shouldn't mix benzos with those drugs. Uh, so those two models, I think, are quite useful uh, to kind of get into harm reduction and safe drug use. Or did mm. you, what do you think? What, what would you add to that? Um... Yeah, I guess when I think about it, um, you know, I, I always tell, especially young people that, well, they, you know, you, you first need to understand that every drug can have benefits or harms and what these benefits can be and then what the harms can be. And again, when you think about the harms, you think about the short term risks, which, you know, as um, you just mentioned, Ivan, could be something like mixing certain drugs or taking too much of a drug. Uh, but then there are the long-term risks, which are, I think, trickier to communicate and actually convince people to change their behavior based on those long-term consequences. So, like, um, when I just uh, mentioned about drawing this line uh, between harms and benefits, I feel like you need to um, have a good understanding of a number of things. Let me see how I can categorize them. So... I'd say understand the risks uh, risks of drugs. But again, the trick uh, the uh, tricky bit here is that there is not enough research, especially on the long term effects of drugs, because you know drugs are um, heavily controlled substances. It's not very easy to do research on them. It's not easy to fund uh, find funding, um, and then you also need to have a good understanding of your own well being. You know, you need to be observant about how you're feeling. Um, um, and I'd say, in particular, you need to be observant about when your behavior becomes habitual, because, you know, drugs are moreish, like video gaming. And I feel like it's crucial to kind of understand when what you do doesn't have a specific purpose, whether that purpose is to go out with friends, enjoy music or enjoy sex, but it's just, you know, become a thing that you do, like having a split after work or having a um, pint after work. And I guess the last thing I always try to remind myself is um, to understand this fine line between recreational use and self-medication. Because again, it's a very easily crossed line. Um, you know, sometimes you don't understand that you are doing something as escapism because you are depressed or you are anxious. Like, if you can notice that, then you can ask yourself um, very essential questions like, is there any other way of coping with this thing? Or are there underlying reasons that I can address? So I feel like once you keep an eye on these things that I've just listed, you're more likely to, you know, find the balance that we've been talking about. Yeah, for sure. And I think... It's also difficult in the culture we live in to sometimes recognize potentially damaging habitual behavior because we have such an impulsive culture where we believe that the good life is one in which you can get anything you want whenever you want it and the whole world tells us to continuously want everything all the time. Uh, so it's very easy to start using drugs in this way and not even recognize that what you're doing is forming a habit, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting what you say about people having to recognize how they feel when they take drugs because everyone kind of or many people have heard that 
you set and setting as you say that you shouldn't take especially certain drugs in certain mindsets but i think people usually understand this very superficially when in fact learning to use drugs healthily i think really involves learning to connect with yourself when sober very carefully and understanding and yeah you really have to understand yourself i think to use drugs well and that's an ever-changing and very difficult goal yeah yeah but to be honest i would say in defense of uh most people one issue that we have right now is that we lack culture uh of drug use and obviously one of the reasons we like that culture is because it's been a like manufacturing and dealing and consuming drugs has been illegal so people haven't had the uh, spaces to explicitly pass on drug culture and get feedback on each behavior so for instance one example is like if when you compare alcohol and cannabis use like alcohol use in certain cultures it's it's more embedded in the culture and therefore it is often more uh it's healthier or less harmful so for instance in the french culture having like wine after uh lunch or dinner uh just a bit of wine is normal and but and kids see that since they're small so they learn how a healthy uh relationship with alcohol is but i've lived in london for nine years and i can see that (laughs) the culture the alcohol culture is a bit different and from speaking to my my friends it seems like uh at least my what i i've seen is that they don't have these slow and guided integration uh, into the use of alcohol is like whenever when they were ready to drink alcohol they just went for it Uh, and i think we have the same issues with other other drugs like you don't see your parents or uh, other adults using them or at least you don't hear about it and once you it's available it's like hey let's try this and it feels good so let's do it a bit more and more and more and then um, so yeah, I would say that's an important aspect that uh, we lack, and uh, hopefully, when the laws change, it will be easier to to develop in healthy ways. Mm. Yes, which leads me on very nicely to my next question. Did you have something to add, Ada? Oh no, I was gonna say, Ivan, I really like your concept about uh, memes, like drug oh, yeah. memes, and the lack of it. Like, would you like to elaborate on it? Because I think it explains it so well. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want to get into it because I don't think everyone buys it. But <laughs> So, you know, uh, Max, you know what, what a meme is? Yeah. yeah so, yeah. What, what's a meme? A meme is, uh, how to describe it? Put me on the spot. I would say a small packaged, usually combination of text and image that uh, conveys a generally understood idea or reference or right. something like that. So that's what you, most people listening to the podcast, uh, podcast will think. But another uh, definition for meme uh, was coined, but the term meme was supposed to be coined Dawkins, by... Dawkins, right? Dawkins, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a set of behaviors that are passed on generation after generation and that similar to genes, so the name is inspired on, on the term gene, are mutate and slightly change and sometimes um, one of the mutations uh, for some reason is fits the environment better than the previous one so it spreads uh, and uh, gains um, presence in the population so one thing the way i i see um like what i was explaining earlier is kind of this concept of uh lacking memes for certain uh drug use so because they memes have to to mutate they need feedback and if the feedback is not explicit and is not allowed to be um it's not like right now uh the feedback that people get uh, with certain drug use is hidden and it's okay. it is it, not exposed to all the information that it should uh so one example that i uh usually mention is the interaction between 
certain anticonceptive medication and other drugs, so like modafinil and MDMA. Mm-hmm. And because uh, maybe certain aspects of drug use have, have been driven by, by males, these are the, like, the things that worry females haven't been uh, exposed uh, or con- haven't been like thought about uh, enough. Yeah. So uh, this is the, the idea of like uh, lacking means for drug use and how the illegality of the behavior and everything around it makes means uh, very hard to uh, spread and also improve uh, generation after generation. I like it. It's interesting. Yeah. I like uh, it. Yeah. And what are some of these, while we're here, have you any examples of particular issues that, uh, or concerns that women have around drugs that aren't, or uh, that aren't as spoken about or as known about? Oh, this is probably the best to, to answer that question. Okay, yeah. I mean, when people ask this question, they usually want to go into um, kind of more sexuality or like the vulnerability of women around sex and like consent and everything. Um, <laughs> what always comes to my mind is like the interaction of the drugs with your hormones. Because yeah. um, <laughs> like, yeah, with certain drugs, you know, depending on where you are on your menstrual cycle, you know, they can have more or less effects. Um, and it's never spoke, spoken of, you know, including alcohol, okay. um, you know, depending on your progesterone levels and things like that. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't remember the details, so I, I don't want to give like wrong harm reduction information right now. Um, but uh, what can you think yeah, of anything there else? There is one. I, I, I know of one study that has shown that the levels of 5-HT2A receptors uh, in females uh, change throughout the menstrual cycle. Okay. Uh, I don't know when they are highest or lowest, but I'm sure yeah. these can be found. Uh, so that means that depending on when a female takes a drug that binds to 5-HT2A uh, receptors. Which are the serotonin receptors, right? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the psychedelics are mm-hmm. the ones that bind uh, classically to those receptors. Then the um, intensity of the experience will change. So, yeah. That's something, and to be honest, like it could be that for males, males also have hormonal cycles, which haven't been studied, but it could be that those cycles also impact the drug use. But yeah, I think in, in, in that sense, the female hormonal cycles are uh, more uh, exposed and easy to see, even though mm. they haven't been studied as they should have. Um, but mm. there's, there are other things. Uh, I'll say, like, I think what Arda said is true. Like, one of the main things is the vulnerability, not of the taking the drug itself, but everything around it. So, clubbing, uh, for instance. Um, yeah. So, and like, blackouts with alcohol, especially. It's yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I have, like, you know, quite a few female friends that they don't know they had sex with someone or if they remember to use contraception and things like yeah. that. You just take more risks and sometimes you don't even remember the t- risks you t- uh, took. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. So just so drugs are able to exacerbate existing issues, I guess, or specific issues that women face. Mm. Um, interesting. It's interesting that the hormonal cycles make a difference. I'd heard that vaguely before, but... Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. to the point that, like, in the old times, uh, even in animal studies, they wouldn't use female rats simply yeah. because their hormonal cycle would, you know, mess up the data too much. Oh, classic. So, like, historically, <laughs> there is already a bias towards, you know, the efficacy of even the medications on the market to work better on males. We simply don't understand interactions well enough. Okay, not good. Not good. <laughs> not, not good. Um, and do you know of anyone trying to change that? Any research that's happening to try and rebalance it at all? Or is it still an unknown? Um, there is more of it happening. There is definitely more female rats being used. That's good news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, unless you're the rat, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think I don't know about um, drugs specifically or drug research specifically, but I know that in the neuroscience field now, it is encouraged. Uh, I'm kind of expected to either do two experiments in which you have males and females or have a balanced number of males and females. Uh, that's the case for also psychology. Um, but in, I want to say that this is not specific to females, but I've been doing, I've been collaborating with two researchers in the past two years. And we have done a big survey to understand the issues around alcohol use in the trans and non-binary uh, communities in the UK. So um, I've been collaborating with uh, Dean Connolly, Dr. Dean Connolly and Dr. Emma Watson. And the, wait, I don't think that's her, Emma. The, Watson is not her surname, sorry. <laughs> and so, yeah, we've been looking into how um, these communities are um, more vulnerable to, as we set the issues around alcohol use. Uh, so I think um, the issues for specific populations in regards to drug use are starting to be more researched and acknowledged. Uh, but I guess it also depends on the political agendas of the governments in place and all those stuff. So, uh, but there's progress. Uh, for sure. Okay, and so these communities, are you more susceptible to becoming addicted to drugs or um, what kind of things? Yeah, so in the, specifically in the trans and non-binary community, I, I'm not sure how much I can disclose of the results because Fair we enough. are writing the, we've analyzed the data and we are expecting to publish their results soon. But um, so that's, I don't think I can say much about our research specifically, but the motivation for doing this research is that for social and also some physiological reasons, uh, they are more vulnerable to the harm. So when I say social, I mean um, transphobia and uh, violence. Uh, so and then... Uh, people that are trans and non-binary, specifically trans, are more likely to be uh, sex workers uh, in vulnerable situations. Okay. And alcohol is often used uh, as a... It's often in the mix and uh, increases the harm. And when I say physiological, I mean now with the hormonal therapies, the understanding of the interactions and even what, what doctors know about the interactions between hormone therapies and other drugs is, is very little. So um, we're, with this research, we're trying to expose uh, how the motivations of individuals uh, to drink alcohol are related to the harm and the benefits. Okay, interesting. Really interesting. But yeah, if you want to know more, I'll send you the papers when they're out. And uh, Yeah, that'd be nice. We can write an article on it or something. Yeah. Summar summarize it for people. That'd be yeah, nice. that'll be awesome. Cool. cool, cool, cool. Okay, so moving on to politics and policies, I think I can probably guess your answers. Um, but would you do you think that drug policy should loosen and people and it would benefit everyone if people didn't face legal and social challenges so much when using drugs or when talking about drugs? I think are that you, you're yeah. the expert on policies. <laughs> expert, thanks. <laughs> um, I mean, drug policy is never as simple as just like loosening certain laws or you know just legalizing drugs. It's a lot more multifaceted than that. You know, you need to be well. You need to be thinking about I think two things. The first one is access, which in certain cases you want to increase the access, but, you know, for some certain subpopulations, you might want to decrease it, like with children and young people. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it comes to safety, well, whatever you do, whether you want to legalize or illegalize drugs, you want to make sure that, you know, people stay safe, however you do it. Um, so, like, we can go into detail about those, and then we can also, like, I don't know, uh, separate recreational use from medical use because the policies around them will be different. So, like, 
I don't know how how I should go into detail. Um, so let's start with medical use, as it's a very popular topic at the moment, um, and laws are changing quite, not maybe not maybe still quite glacially, but quicker. Uh, so what what would you say? Could you describe the current um, landscape and what you think should happen there, and what the results could be? Yeah, so with medical use, I guess we can start with uh, cannabis because cannabis is now, you know, medicalized in many of the, you know, in quotation mark, big or kind of large players um, in the world, um, which is a good thing. Whether the way, you know, the policies are implemented or designed are successful or not is a matter of debate. Um, because again, um, you know, if you are thinking about the UK, yes, cannabis was medicalized, but is there good access to it? It's a question. Um, and you know, when we are thinking about access, um, then uh, you need to think about the cost. Also, you need to think about the infrastructure. Um, and again, cost involves, um, you know, like the cost of the drug, like the how you know it is produced but also its availability in the health system so like if these drugs are not shown to be cost effective they are not available in the health system the health payers the health insurers are not going to pay them and ultimately they're not going to be accessible to patients and if that's not the case it's not a good policy even though you know it's legal and you also need to be thinking about the infrastructure, uh, which means, you know, the workforce, the supply chains and all that. And again, it's a matter of debate how well it's all been implemented um, in, in different countries. Um, in terms of recreational use, I guess there are a lot of um, trial and error happening all around the world. No one knows the best model. Um, the big debate is always, um, you know, free market versus a heavily regulated market and where the balance lies. Because if it's too regulated, then the people uh, might end up preferring buying from uh, the black market well, where prices might be more competitive, there might be more choice. Um, but if it's too free, then there's a problem around advertising. Um, you know, like if you think about nicotine as a drug, you know, in the US, um, I believe one of the main reasons why there was a, a kind of youth vaping epidemic was because the regulations around advertisement was a bit too loose. So again, it's just like a matter of finding a balance between the two. Definitely. I've got, um, I thought about this before and I've got, I almost feel that the, at least the online black markets, not necessarily the street black market, but these online black markets almost serve users better than yeah. an, the equivalent unregulated or an equivalent unregulated uh, legal market where advertising is rampant and yeah. um, producers and sellers can really push their products, whereas these black markets, uh, they're highly competitive and they're organically and honestly reviewed by the users so the users know what they're getting and they can't be manipulated in any way by the sellers um and i know that's maybe saying that a black market is actually better for people than a legal one but in comparison to if these drugs were fully legalized and available in the way that many other products are it's hard to see how yeah. it almost wouldn't do more harm in in a capitalist system i mean I'm, sh I'm sure most of them wouldn't just be let onto the market without regulation but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to add or challenge Arda on some of the things that she said because I, I think I would say I, I appreciate there are certain legal uh, logistical infrastructures that need to be developed for a regulated market or, or for a not illegal market, but uh, many of the infrastructures already exist. Like Max uh, just mentioned, the uh, dark markets are. Uh, street uh, dealers and all the illegal infrastructure that you have there exists already. It's just that it doesn't exist in the way that politicians and others want it to exist. And uh, one, I think, issue with um, policy making and the psychedelic and cannabis markets is that 
it is not uh, considering all those existing infrastructures and uh, narrative specifically in the cannabis uh, sector is that we should regulate to kind of um, remove dealers and uh, illegal growers like if they were evil people but they're actually just they're growing out they're just providing weed to people uh, to others that want to consume it so mm-hmm. instead of creating a market to remove them you can create a, a market and an infrastructure to embrace them uh, and you will probably so yeah what do you have to say about that Arda? no that, that that's kind of what i implied when i also okay. said there is lots of no no like trial and error happening because okay. as you say when especially in north america um cannabis was legalized okay. the entry to the market as a legal producer was so high it was so difficult all the licensing all the stuff all the money you had to pay it suddenly increased your cost it just wasn't viable but now okay. you know they're finally understanding things and they are looking around ways of as you say embracing those people and i guess one example is um netherlands you know that there have been coffee shops there for decades and um now and they existed in a gray zone where it wasn't mm. legal but it wasn't illegal um, but they sourced their cannabis from um you know not very legal producers but now they are trying to um you know integrate them into mm. the system and okay. make them fully legal um, providers okay so there's learnings That's... happening it's just it's slow mm-hmm. and what would you do it to make it quicker sorry I mean, policy is always slow, but um, I guess more communications between all the different stakeholders, Mm. especially the drug users on what they prefer, what they prioritize, because at the end Mm. of the day, from the policymakers perspective, you know, you want to uh, nudge consumers from the black market to a legal market so that yeah. things are better quality, things are safer, the money stays within a legal economy and can be invested back in the treatment and sport systems and all yeah. that. And like to be able to do that, you need to understand your user. I yeah. feel like that's where the biggest gap is right now. Why why is the change in policy so slow, especially in many countries, for the UK, for example? Because it seems considering all the evidence we have about well one how existing policy doesn't work and how two how new more liberal policies could benefit many people in various ways it still seems to be a conversation in many places that just isn't going anywhere i'd say it's because politics currently are very populist in many of the countries and um you know following decades of propaganda and misinformation um people i mean politicians are just going for quick wins when they need votes and fighting against you know drugs you know being tough on drugs still win votes unfortunately and they go for it people are scared of drugs and it will be difficult to change that it will be you know it will require lots of education because it wasn't just lack of education there was miseducation about drugs you know we have a we have generations of people thinking heroin is the same thing as cannabis they think mm-hmm. the harms are the same so it's just difficult to change yeah because yeah. even even sorry we were going to say something ivan no, no well mm-hmm. i was going to add about the spanish situation because we've got general elections in uh like six days four days 23rd of july and i've been reading the manifestos of different political parties and only one of them and it's right now is considered the fourth political force uh speaks about drugs uh and um includes uh, changes or proposals to change how we deal with drug related issues the all the big two so labor and conservatives the equivalents in spain they don't even mention it in their manifestos. So, yes, yeah, uh, I think it's based on uh, what Arda said. Uh, so, yeah, I'm seeing what Arda just explained. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think policy problems are always difficult when they are tied tied into morality, like abortion laws, and then it becomes very yeah. difficult to inform those policy decisions with evidence. Because, you know, there is morality. It's not about being rational and using evidence. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a shame. There's a long way to go. Long way to go. Um, a question about ketamine. Do either of you know much about ketamine and its medical uses? Uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah. Okay, so I wonder and um, uh, why specifically has ketamine been adopted and uh, legalized in many places for medical use where other drugs haven't, even though ketamine, at least as far as I know, is more novel and the research began much later than research into other drugs. And yet, for, I guess it's been used actually medically for decades for anesthesia, hasn't it? Maybe that's uh, part of it. You kind of answered your own question. Okay. Because, yeah, just... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ketamine, because it's an approved drug. You know, it's mm -hmm. even in the list of essential drugs by WHO. So, like, once a drug is on the market, you could use it, um, you know, off-label. And okay. that's what's been happening in the US because the drug is already on the market. Um, doctors are just, you know, they are okay with prescribing it for depression. Um, but obviously the attitude is not the same everywhere. You know, there is not the same uh, level of ketamine uh, off-label prescriptions in the UK where doctors are less um, or more conservative about doing it. And um, what do you think about the use of ketamine as an antidepressant? Um, so, I guess? yeah, I... I uh, wrote a paper about the use of ketamine for treating addiction. Okay. And one, uh, so I looked in the literature about uh, using ketamine to treat depression because there's a lot of comorbidity between addiction and depression there. Um, so I, uh, we know what I think about its use. I would say we don't know uh enough yet to optimize the treatments uh, while using ketamine. So one of the things that I found during my uh, literature review is that we don't know the mechanism underlying how ketamine can help with mental disorders. So I would, but I would say it's, even though we don't know enough to optimize uh, certain parameters of the treatment, it, it, ketamine is considered is such a safe drug in many ways uh, because and we also know how to handle it in the clinic like doctors and nurses know how to use it um, it is um, a suitable candidate to uh, be a pioneer uh, treatment uh, so the issue is that it's not as for, for some reason it's not as sexy in the psychedelic um, uh, sector. I don't know if that's uh, mm -hmm. Arda. Whether you have any, you're more into the psychedelic sector, like. Yeah, um, I mean, I'd say ketamine and depression. So the evidence isn't that strong in terms of how good ketamine is for depression, especially in comparison to other alternatives. Um, you know, when you look at the small studies, it does look very promising. And, you know, when you look at its mechanism of action, like I won't be able to go into details, but, but there is some stuff around like um, encouraging growth of neurons and things like that. But, you know, yeah. there, there's, there is some mechanism, underlying mechanisms there. But like at the end of the day, it is a substance with um, addiction potential. And the way it is delivered, you know, what's happening um, in the field in practice right now isn't ideal um, because uh, these clinics were never regulated properly. You know, at the end of the day, um, regulatory agencies like FDA, they regulate the drug. No one regulates the therapy. And, um, you know, with ketamine, yes, you go to the clinic, you get an infusion, you feel good for a few days. But if you are not really addressing the underlying uh, causes of your illness, if you are just, you know, helping the symptoms by having 
ketamine, you know, you're going to keep coming back. You, you know, you can have multiple sessions and you're going to keep coming back and can just, it's not a very sustainable treatment in a way. That's why psychedelics look better, especially from a health system's perspective. And again, like maybe if it was delivered with therapy, where you're actually working on the problem itself, then it looks more viable. But again, like there has been some um, large studies, like phase three studies, and there has been studies looking at its, its cost effectiveness, and they weren't looking very positive. Hence, um, UK refused to, you know, NHS refused to cover ketamine like the last three times the drug developers asked. But do, uh, do you know whether they combined ketamine with uh, psychotherapy? Um, I mean, surely some clinics do integration sessions, but mm. it's not, you know, it's not like you have to do it that way. Yeah, it's not as common as with other psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. what's less common is like to actually combine it with an actual evidence-based therapy model. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because this is one of the things I wonder about ketamine. Will it just because it's kind of some people rave about it at the moment and think it's going to change the world in terms of treating depression. But I wonder, will it just become another antidepressant that works for some people, but doctors just throw at people and then some people become addicted to and don't really understand what they're doing to themselves. And then will there be a whole, will there be a huge number of people just taking ketamine really regularly without really understanding what they're doing? Who know? I mean, maybe, it's maybe possible. not, but. Yeah. But, yeah, but I think what you're hinting at a more uh, fundamental a structural issue of the treatment sector and, and our knowledge on mental disorders and how to treat them. Uh, I think we, mental disorders, like we've tried to categorize mental disorders in certain buckets, but then... Uh, Often it, people show conditions or um, that share that are shared between different categories, and that's why, like, it could be that what it 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 makes sense that it, what works for one person doesn't work for the other when the depression of one person is it looks completely different to the depression of another person. So the underlying mechanism of each depressive state might be completely different. That's why ketamine works for one, but then SSRIs work well for others. Uh, so, so yeah, I think this applies to not only psychedelics, but um, other drugs uh, that are used for uh, treatments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially in mental health, we simply don't yeah. know enough. You know, with psychedelics as well, we don't know how they work. We don't understand the pharmacology. Yes, we have theories, but when you think about it, you know, we are trying to fix something we don't understand with a drug we don't understand. <laughs> it's whole trial and error and, you know, based on historical use. Like everything looks so promising, you know, I'm deeply passionate about um, all this. That's why I work in it. Don't get me wrong. But I also find it interesting to play the devil's advocate because there's so much work to be done in the field, but there's so much hype as well. And again, like what happens in clinical trials in the lab doesn't translate into real life that easily. And that's what's happened with ketamine. No. Okay. So sifting through the hype as much as possible, which psychedelic would each of you say shows the most potential for, uh, say, treating a mental health problem of your choice? Um, and, 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 and why? <laughs> Ooh. I mean, yeah. Either. Okay. <laughs> Again, it depends from which perspective you approach the question yeah. and okay. depends on the drug classification. Cause like when, when, when you look at the evidence currently, the strongest evidence is on MDMA if you count MDMA as a psychedelic, even though it's not a classic psychedelic. And like MDMA for PTSD looks really good. You know, there has been three kind of large scale um, trials, phase three trials, and the data looks really promising. So that's like, I think that's the first one to at least be accessible to uh, people. Um, if you look at depression, 
um, which is, um, you know, like it's a popular condition because its prevalence is just so high. So the potential to, um, you know, uh, help more people and obviously generate more revenue from the drug developer's perspective. And from the health system's perspective, uh, people are leaning into short-acting psychedelics, so DMT or 5-MeO-DMT, because, um, you know, when you are thinking about the other ones like psilocybin or LSD, they are just really long, and it suddenly becomes very expensive um, for the health systems to, you know, be able to provide you a room for, like, six, eight hours and two therapists to attend you. So again, things like DMT, especially if they can find better administration systems than just like IV, um, that I think it will be, uh, it's a very promising treatment. Okay, cool. And so just another question about DMT. Is it given in these settings? Is it given at what will colloquially be known as a breakthrough dose? So do people have a very powerful psychedelic experience? Usually, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Again, because we don't know if you take the trip out of the equation, we don't actually know that it's working. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to, I was just thinking about uh, non-psychedelic treatments. Like, well, I'm not sure what's the term for these drugs, but you know, the, there is a, a stream of thought that thinks you can use psychedelics as inspiration for substances that don't have the psychedelic effects but have the um, health uh, improvements that we are seeing in, with a psychedelic. So, uh, what do you do? You have anything to say about those? Are there? Since you're, um, I can share my own opinion because it's simply not known. There is simply not enough evidence to say anything certain. But um, what I think is for certain conditions, especially conditions that re- require an, a, you know, a big significant reframing of things, of your memories, experiences, the way you think about yourself, yeah. I feel like you do need the trip because that's where you actually you know, start to think about things differently. But maybe when you think about milder cases of depression, um, there might be a place for psychedelic compounds that are not hallucinogenic. Because that's the wonderful thing about psychedelics for treating these conditions, isn't it? That they can not only affect the symptoms, but can actually allow a person to uh, understand their problems and perhaps go on to solve them or at least manage them in a conscious way rather than just making themselves feel different and trying to get on with it. So they, yeah. have, they have longevity to them, yeah. I think. Yeah. And also there are like two thoughts of uh, schools of thought, uh, you know, one being the psychedelic drugs um, is what, you know, they, they do the job basically. They are therapeutic by themselves. And then the other school of thought says that, uh, no, uh, therapy does the work, but drugs assist the therapy, and hence, you no know, psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, and you know, when, again, when you think about these non hallucinogenic psychedelics, if they are going to facilitate the therapy, you know, which they might well do, or maybe they are going to, I don't know, um, open critical period in a mild way, or I don't know, mm. facilitate plasticity it's a popular term nowadays like they might be helpful especially uh you know adjunct to the therapy cool cool and it is a common theme while we're talking about plasticity of psychedelics that they increase neuroplasticity right and help people to build new pathways and overwrite old ones is that correct yeah yeah Yeah. that's one of the the main effects that people are studying now uh, there was a recent paper showed that uh, so what the results of a recent paper suggests that this plasticity is not triggered by the drug binding to the 5h2a receptor but there might be an internal mechanism um by which the drug gets into the drug or, or somehow influences the an internal process and this is what triggers plasticity because 
when I did my ketamine uh, literature review, uh, the understanding was that the five, so the drug binds to the five H two A receptor, and then there's a cascade uh, in which mTOR, which is a molecule that is involved in loads of things in the cell, and is even involved in uh, the cascade, uh, one of the cascades in the development of cancer. So it's a, it basically um, hacks some of the processes, cellular processes involved in growth. And so the understanding used to be that it was through the 5H28 receptor, but now they're trying to really understand that mechanism because as Arda was saying, like we, don't, we simply don't know uh, how these drugs work. Um, so yeah, the cool thing about uh, these drugs is that they seem to enhance synaptogenesis, which is the generation of synapses. So synapses are places in which neurons are talking to each other and exchange information. Uh, and that is what is what that's what plasticity is, creating new connections between neurons. Okay. And I mean, it's probably too much to go into here, but the potential scope that that has does it basically allow does that allow people to break old patterns and habits and form new ones more easily, potentially? Is that the thinking? I uh, so here you're trying to connect two levels of um, uh, a, a grouping elements. So when we talk about the cellular level we know that there there is synaptogenesis and, and there are changes at the cellular le level but when we talk about um you you were talking about um for, for instance your rumination rumination is uh um one so rumination is in depression people uh, often get uh hooked into one pattern of thought and they mm -hmm. can't get out of just thinking one thing in one way so psychedelics can presumably uh, disrupt these ruminative states and help the people that like, propel that person out of that pattern. But this is a, uh, we're talking about the level of the mind, which is far from the level of the cells and the neurons. Okay. Uh, and we don't know how to, not, not, not just in psychedelics, but in neuroscience and psychology, the big question is how do we go from neurons talking to each other and firing uh, and activating to a thought or uh, that looks red. Uh, there's a philosophical question that um, worries neuroscientists. And I think if we make progress, we will uh, start connecting the different levels. But I don't think, I haven't heard of any studies trying to connect synaptogenesis with breaking uh, thoughts of pattern. Okay. In specifically in psychedelics and depression, it could be, but it could also be uh, that uh, when you take psychedelics, uh, Robert Carhart Harris et al. Uh, have found that the entropy of the brain uh, increases. So the entropy of the brain is basically um, how much different areas talk to each other and how ordered this information is. So it could be that it's just during the psychedelic uh, state, uh, you enhance certain connections, but not just through creation of synapses, just because the information flows differently and it might not have anything to do with synaptogenesis. So yeah, that's just uh, to say that we simply don't know and it will be cool to study the connection, but I think uh, it will come in the next few years for sure. Cool. Cool. Um, okay, that's it for the list of questions. Do I'm wondering uh, if either of you are running out of time because we've been running for a nice comfy hour now. It's uh, run away with itself. It's been good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm easy with time. I'm working my own pace. Okay. Uh, do either of you have anything you'd like to add from your own work, from any of your fields of work? Anything? thoughts or pieces of information or anything else that you think is particularly interesting or important? Not probably 
something will pop in my mind when I put my head on the pillow when I got to so it's like oh I should have mentioned that uh, yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh I guess I, I talked about the AI stuff at the beginning uh but I think there not only us but other people are trying to integrate these new AI tools in the drug uh sectors uh, and I think, for instance, Arda knows of a few examples in the psychedelic sector uh, that we've discussed. Uh, I think one direction... So obviously, these might not be specific to the drug sectors because like, uh, everyone seems to be trying to integrate AI tools in their sectors to increase productivity and even work less. So, But I think... And specifically in the drug sector, there are certain advantages of these tools uh, that can be beneficial for the legal advances and also for the medicinal ones. Because um, in terms of the, why do I say legal advances? So if my vision is that if we develop tools for people to take drugs safely, then the worry of drugs are harmful and bad can be minimized or you can convince people that, well, we've got all these tools. It's like uh, when they develop the belt uh, for uh, and driving or like the helmet. So people are less scared of uh, driving a motorbike if they have all the uh, security um, tools and strategies to minimize the risks. It's about minimizing risks. So I think... Uh, these tools can basically be used to develop um, uh, safety uh, or like security uh, tools for minimizing the risk at scale. So that might help uh, changing the loss. And then I think, Arda, maybe you know of examples in which AI has been integrated in or people are experimenting with integrating AI into the psychedelic uh, treatment sector. Yeah, or like in mental health generally. So one level they are trying to integrate it is like at the level of um, therapy, because like, you know, when you speak to your therapist, whether under the influence of drugs or not, um, Mm. you know, AI tools can actually analyze the conversations and kind of can understand, um, you know, like what you need to do about that therapy. It can be a good way of um, providing feedback, whether to the therapist or to the patient and improve the whole process. Um, AI can also be useful, especially like with better brain imaging techniques or like diagnostic techniques to, um, first of all, to understand what's wrong in um, in a variety of mental health conditions because, you know, like un- until um, today, you know, mental health conditions, they are diagnosed based on symptoms. It's not like we have a um, biological basis to diagnose them, but the more we learn about, learn we, uh, the more we learn about it, the better we understand that there, there are so many commonalities in the different conditions that we name, you know, like similar brain patterns, similar problems. And that's why, like, for instance, psychedelics seems to be helpful for many conditions because the underlying mechanisms are overlapping. So I feel like AI can be helpful to identify these mechanisms, um, which ultimately allow us to better understand the conditions and develop better medications. And I guess another level would be to identify the patients or like the subpopulations of patients that might be more likely to better respond to certain drugs. You know, like an AI after collecting lots of data um, on, um, you know, I don't know, brain imaging or treatment outcomes, it can tell like, oh, okay, I see activation here and there, blah, blah, blah. So maybe you might benefit from this drug. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that will be very valuable for the sector in the future, identifying the good responders. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's, the, there's one application of AI that I'm, I'm close. Uh, I'm following closely because my partner is working on it and it's basically combining... Uh, deep learning with models of uh, computational models of how drugs 
interact with receptors and cell membranes. And basically the, that can help us uh, find effective and useful drugs much quicker because one problem with the mm. development of drugs, both for medicinal and in the future recreational purposes, is that the drug, the amount of drugs that could exist is so vast mm -hmm. that exploring all that space will take too long. So we need to find strategies, uh, shortcuts to identify uh, drugs that are more suitable for certain things. Uh, and, and this is a space that is uh, growing, developing quite quickly. And it's super exciting that you, um, maybe at some point you will be able to even create drugs for each individual uh, very quickly. Uh, so yeah, that'll, that'll be super cool. But that's just a vision for the future. That'd be a crazy world. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine. Oh. Oh, what a bright future. <laughs> hope, hope, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, well, if we get there. If we get there. Uh, uh, I'm hopeful. Yeah, that's good to hear. I need yeah. a bit more of that in my life, I think. <laughs> we need more optimism in general. Oh, yeah. We need more imagination. That's very true. I think imagination is sorely lacking in the world these days. Yeah. Yeah. There was something that uh, drugs, um, yeah, increase creativity and imagination. So uh, <laughs> Zamnesia is contributing to uh, that in maybe in, in ways or others. Collective imagination <laughs> of yeah. the masses. <laughs> I'll take it. I'm sure that I'm sure they'll be happy to have that label. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's not. It's, I haven't. No one paid for me uh, to say that. Okay, cool. I think um, I think that's a good place to leave it. Unless anyone has anything to add. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you both very much.